Welcome back to Parkside Green's Bible Study. Pastor Steve here, very excited to study this opening section of the Gospel of Luke with you. And I wonder, if you were tasked with telling the story of Jesus, where would you begin? Where would you start? And I don't think there's necessarily one right answer to that question. Because consider, Matthew begins with 17 verses on the genealogy of Jesus, right? He, he traces the lineage of Jesus' predecessors from Abraham to David to the, the exiles in Babylon and right down to Jesus. Whereas Mark begins with Isaiah's prophecy about one who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. And somehow Mark manages to fit into the first 15 verses, Jesus' baptism and his temptation and his proclamation of the gospel. I mean, so fast moving. Whereas John is a little bit different. He starts with the eternal word of God, who was God and who was with God right from the beginning, before anything was made. <laughs> and then John tells us how that eternal word of God became human, became flesh, and dwelt among us. Whereas Luke's a little bit different because, as we'll see, he begins with displays of God's goodness to Theophilus, to Zechariah, to Elizabeth, and to all of God's people, including us. So we're going to study repeated displays of God's goodness in Luke 1 to 1, verses 1 to 25, which we'll see under four headings. And they're found in your outline in case you're taking notes. First, we'll see the purpose given in verses 1 to 4. Secondly, we will see the people described in verses 5 to 9. Thirdly, we'll look at the prayer answered in verses 10 to 17. And lastly, we'll see the plot thickens in verses 18 to 25. So we begin with the purpose given in verses 1 to 4. Now, Luke knows he is not the first person to write an account of Jesus. Maybe he has Matthew or Mark or maybe even others in mind when he says in his opening verse that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled among us. And then Luke tells us about his gospel, right? It's based on those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Apostles, perhaps others, who had followed Jesus from the very beginning of his public ministry, then they delivered or they passed on to Luke eyewitness testimony. So we can trust what Luke says. We can trust it. Luke had followed, you see, or investigated all these things closely or carefully for some time. So it seemed good to him to write an orderly account or history of these things for most excellent Theophilus. And that phrase, most excellent, was used for people of high social standing. Uh, you can see this with Festus and Felix in Acts 23 and 24 and 26. We don't know for sure exactly who Theophilus was. It remains a bit of a mystery. But he appears to be a high-placed Roman official, Maybe it was even Luke's patron who helped fund his book. And why did Luke write his book? Well, right up front, Luke gives the purpose. So that Theophilus, and really all readers of Luke's gospel, may have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. Luke's gospel, you see, it's not about his ideas, 
but it's about the things which have been accomplished among us. It's about what God has done. As Theophilus then, and as we, read all the ways that that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and the miracles he performed and what he taught and what he suffered and how he rose from the dead, we can come to great assurance of the certainty of our faith. You see, Luke's gospel, it's no made-up myth or fairy tale. No, the events happened, and then they were passed down by eyewitnesses, And after careful investigation, Luke wrote them down in an orderly way. So what he says is well supported. It stands up under cross-examination. Luke's information is good, and he knows what he's writing about. So we see God was good to Theophilus, and God is good to us in using Luke to bring us certainty of the good news that we've been taught. Right about who Jesus is and what he did and what his kingdom is like. There is so much just right here in the purpose given in verses 1 to 4, and that purpose unfolds as we move to our second section of the people described in verses 5 to 9. Luke carefully grounds his narrative in history. Right In verse 5, it's not about Once upon a time, it's about in the time or in the days of Herod the Great, who ruled as the king of Judea, the the land of the Jews, from 37 to 4 BC. Remember how the numbers go down in the BCs. But while Herod was the king, true enough, God was working, surprisingly, through an obscure priest. Probably near the end of Herod's reign, maybe around 7 or 6 BC, there was an Israelite priest named Zechariah, and he was married to a woman named Elizabeth. Like her husband, she was also descended from the priestly line of Aaron, who was Moses' older brother. So they're both from that priestly line. And and besides that, this husband and wife shared four additional traits in common, at least that I counted. Number one, they were both righteous before God. Now, that doesn't mean they were sinless, as we'll see in verse 20, but they were righteous. They both walked blamelessly in all the Lord's commandments and statutes. Thirdly, they were both childless. And fourthly, they were both advanced in years. So they could probably expect then to die without ever having kids. As readers of Luke then, I think we both respect this couple and feel some empathy for them, don't we? I mean, they're righteous, they're blameless, and they're old and they're childless. You see, even faithful servants of God can have lifelong disappointments. Even faithful servants of God can have lifelong disappointments. Now, the Israelite priests at that time were divided into 24 different divisions, and each of them apparently served uh, twice a year for one week at the temple in Jerusalem. There were lots of priests. Uh, Scholars estimate somewhere between 18 and 24,000 priests But there's just one temple. (laughs) So they took turns serving there, right? And Zechariah was part of the division of Abijah. And when it was their week to be on duty, Zechariah was providentially chosen by lot to enter the temple and get to burn incense. According to later Jewish sources, 
Some priests never had the privilege of offering incense. And for those who were chosen, they could offer incense just once in their lifetime, and then they were sort of taken out of the lottery. So God displays his goodness to Zechariah in giving him a like-minded, godly wife in Elizabeth and giving him, on this special day, the great privilege of temple ministry. Think about it. Zechariah is in the holy place, which, remember, contained the lampstand and the table for the bread of presence and the altar of incense, where he had been chosen from all the other priests for this day, his once-in-a-lifetime privilege to burn incense before the Lord. Elderly and childless, yes, but serving the Lord faithfully in the role to which God had called him. He was ready for his moment. He's a great model for us, right, in always staying active in the work of the Lord, always staying active in the work of the Lord. So the purpose has been given, the people have been described, and now the prayer is answered in verses 10 to 17. First of all, Luke tells us the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, according to Jewish tradition, the worshipers who were just outside the holy place would have been praying, God of mercy, come into your holy sanctuary and receive with pleasure the offering of your people. But meanwhile, inside the holy place, an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Think about it. A holy creature, an angel, appeared to a holy priest, Zechariah, who was performing a holy duty, burning incense, in a holy place, the sanctuary of the temple. Zechariah's big day, now we realize, is going to get even bigger. <laughs> I mean, he's probably already amped up, right? But when Zechariah saw the angel, man, he was troubled. Fear fell upon him. He was, he was terror-stricken. And that's a pretty common reaction when angels appear to people in the Bible. So the angel of the Lord addressed Zechariah by name and told him not to be afraid. No, because Zechariah's prayer had been heard and, and his wife Elizabeth would bear him a son whom he should name John. Now, some suggest that Zechariah had prayed this prayer for a child maybe hundreds or thousands of times over the years and now the answer finally came. Whereas others suggest that maybe Zechariah had ceased to pray this prayer for a child maybe even years ago because, right, due to their age, uh, maybe he just thought it wasn't going to happen, but now he gets the surprise, delayed answer to this prayer from years gone by. Others, still others, say that as part of his incense burning, probably Zechariah was just simply praying for the redemption of Israel. And God answered that prayer by sending John to prepare the way for the Redeemer, for the Messiah. What we know for sure is that God heard his prayer and God answered it. Not only would Zechariah and Elizabeth have joy and great gladness, but many others also would rejoice at baby John's birth because John would be great before the Lord. Not great in himself, but great before the Lord. 
God would do great things through their son. And one of the ways that John would be set apart for the Lord's work is by not drinking wine or strong drink, kind of like those who, who took the Nazarite vow back in number six. And another unusual thing about baby John is he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Wow. Before John had even been conceived, you see, the Lord had already determined that John would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, changing the direction of their lives. John would go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah, like Malachi had prophesied, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. God will use John, you see, to bring about this widespread turning to prepare the people and make them ready for the Lord. While he was still in utero, John was already a distinct person whom God was filling and empowering for his purposes. It had perhaps been a long time coming, but John's prayer had definitely been heard by the Lord. Not only would they have a child, he and Elizabeth, but God would use that pre-named child, John, to play a crucial role in preparing the people of Israel for the coming of the Lord. So God displays again his goodness to Zechariah and Elizabeth in this gracious, timely answer to the prayer. And in our last section, verses 18 to 25, we will see the plot thicken. <laughs> Next week, when the angel visits Mary, appears to her, she's going to respond by believing the angel. Right? She's going to say, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She's going to have faith. But here, Zechariah, by contrast, says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Right? People like us don't have kids. <laughs> Given their age, Zechariah seems skeptical. And this, think about it, despite the fact that that word had come from an angel who struck fear into Zechariah, who knew Zechariah's name somehow, who knew the name of his wife, Elizabeth, somehow, who knew about their prayer and who knows what the child's destiny is. But be that as may, as it may, he's a doubter, right? Zechariah it seems to be requesting maybe some sort of sign so that he could know the angel's words were true. And the angel answers by giving his name, I'm Gabriel, right? Who's an angel that's mentioned in the book of Daniel, so Zechariah would have been familiar with that. And, he, and the angel also tells about his job. This is what I do. I stand in the presence of God. Okay. <laughs> and I have been sent to bring good news that God has sent me. God has sent me to bring to you, Zechariah. Okay. <laughs> but since John wants a sign so that he can know these things are true, he'll get it in the form of a rebuke for not believing the angel's words. John's sign is he's going to be mute until the prophecies are fulfilled in their time. Now, think about it. On the positive side, the Lord has not revoked his promises. And all the angel's words will be fulfilled in their time. But until those things take place, John is going to be mute. He's going to be totally unable to speak. Imagine that. 
with all this back and forth going on between Zechariah and Gabriel uh, in the holy place, the people outside are wondering, what's taking them so long? <laughs> Why the delay? And they're waiting for Zechariah to emerge from his big moment of offering incense. But when he comes out from the holy place and he's unable to speak to them, they realize something happened there. Maybe he saw some sort of vision in the sanctuary. Something was shaking him, right? And Zechariah tried to communicate to them by making signs, like a form of charades or something, you know, three syllables, but, but he remained mute. And the Greek word used here, kophos, can mean either mute or deaf. And in this case, it might mean both, because if you look ahead to verses 62 and 63, you'll see that rather than just speaking to Zechariah, the people also made signs to him, which may imply that he couldn't hear normally, or right they, they would have just talked to him. Be that as it may, as readers, especially for the first time through, we're wondering, what's next in this story? What's going to happen? Well, Zechariah stays in Jerusalem until his time of service, probably his division's designated week was up and had ended, and then he returned home, but as a stunned and mute man. Right? Remember, there's been no mention of Elizabeth or her knowing any of these things yet. The plot has thickened, and then the happy ending. Sometime after these days, we're not told exactly how long, but sometime after these days, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, conceives in her old age. And she keeps herself in seclusion for five months. Well, we don't know for sure why. Maybe till she began to show, have a little baby bump or confidence in the pregnancy. Not sure, but what we do know for sure is that she saw the pregnancy as something the Lord had done for her. She knew the Lord had looked on her as an old barren woman and had taken away her reproach among the people. Since it was commonly believed at that time childlessness was viewed as like a curse or a disgrace. And God displays his goodness to Elizabeth and to Zechariah, right? And to us too. Think about that. It may not happen in the exact way it did with Elizabeth and Zechariah, but in many different ways. The Lord has looked on us and done wondrous things for us through his son Jesus, has he not? It's amazing. I mean, wow. All that Luke, inspired by God, packed into these first 25 verses of his gospel. Like the purpose, the people, the, the prayer, the plot. And through it all, there are just so many displays of God's goodness to Zechariah, to Elizabeth, to billions of Christians through the years who have read this gospel, and that includes us today. I know you will be encouraged as you gather with your small groups this week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for inspiring this rich gospel. Thank you for eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who delivered to Luke the things that you accomplished among your people. We thank you that Luke followed or investigated all things carefully and then wrote this orderly account so that your people might have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. Thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers and answer them in accordance with your perfect will and your perfect timing. 
Thank you for using John to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And thank you above all for your son, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah and our Savior, through whom we pray. Amen.